Welcome to another edition of the OHL podcast. And I think what we have to say, Dan Mahar, as we get this one started, is a huge thank you. Like, I'd, I'd yell it if it wouldn't overmodulate the volume on your speakers as you listen to this. But all caps, thank you. As we passed this past week, 10,000 downloads of this podcast full of knuckleheads. Not the guests, but certainly these two knuckleheads. Uh, but our sincere thanks for listening to this podcast like you have. 10,000 downloads. Not a bad number. That's incredible. You know, and I have to take credit for the two or three I, I brought in and 9,997 that you brought in. So, <laughs> But thank you to all the listeners. Uh, anyone who's taken the time to listen to these two knuckleheads for sure. If you are doing that, please do tell a friend because we like to think that this is the premier Ontario Hockey League podcast. Subscribe, give us a review, send an email anytime, ohlpodcast at rogers.com. Dan Mahar, you'll find him on Twitter at Tim Wallach, just like the former Montreal Expo. I am at Farwell underscore OHL. On this week's episode of the podcast, we're going to talk a little bit about uniforms because I've got one that has long been my favorite in the league, and I don't know why everybody doesn't feel the same way. We'll also get, of course, to our prospect of the week. Uh, we got a coaching change in Sudbury that came down last week just after we had recorded our episode. We'll talk a little bit about that. And one of the other things uh, I just thought we should start with, Dan, if we were giving some love to the Ottawa 67s, and rightly so, last week when it comes to their use of social media, and we know lots of teams have been doing this, uh, the Erie Otters did a pretty decent job after hanging one on the London Knights, reminding London that the city's name and the team still starts with the letter L after the Otters posted a 6-3 win over London last week. Well, yeah, and I think for the Erie Otters social media team, that's a big W that the whole league is sharing. Because any anytime you uh, you throw shade at the London Knights, I'm pretty sure you have 19 other teams giving you that the thumbs up. So, so yeah, good on you, Erie Otters. You you've earned the right to do that a little bit on social media. And this, and like we said, this is great stuff. It's not obnoxious. It's not over the top. It's it's fun. That's what it should be. Maybe we should talk just a little bit about this Otters Hockey Club because. They were on a bit of a buzzsaw before they finally lost the game this past weekend. But for a team that at least coming into this season, Dan, I thought was another year away. I mean, I know it's still early and we'll get to that a little bit later in this episode of the OHL podcast as well. But uh, at, at this point, anyway, you look at the last week or two for the Erie Otters and you say, have they arrived perhaps a season ahead of when we thought they would? Well, you know, they're the unpredictability of junior hockey is just speaking out through the Erie Otters this year. When you look at that roster on paper, I think a lot of people said, sure, they're going to miss the playoffs or at least be bubble at best. And they're, they're a year or two away. What people can't necessarily account for is teams coming together and gelling and getting contributions from throughout the lineup. And when you do that, you, you kind of are greater than the sum of your parts in some ways. And I'm not suggesting that they don't have good parts. They do, but you look at a player like, Noah Sador is one who I thought would be a key player on that. And not that he hasn't been, but scored his first goal last week. So the production isn't, isn't really ramped up in his case yet, but the team's coming through. And, and when you talk about the W's and the L's that we were talking about in social media, I think the W in Erie stands for work. Um, they just work, work, work. And when you do that, you get results. It's funny. You mentioned Sador. He got the, uh, City News 570 broadcast bump because I had mentioned it stood out to me. We were 
in Erie uh, for Rangers Otters the day he got his first goal and pulled the monkey off his back as he went to the bench as you would expect him to because that was his first goal of the season and I had identified in our pregame show here's a guy that scored 18 last year and still hadn't shown up on the score sheet so he got that first goal the Otters again they were uh, running through this league like a buzzsaw including the 6-3 win over London and perhaps the work is absolutely uh, the calling card of this team, BJ Adams has got that group working really hard and they're getting results. It, it, does it play out the entire season? Are they actually a year ahead of schedule remains to be seen, but that work ethic, we talked about that on our broadcast as well. You know, you go outside a, a hockey locker room and there's usually a, a shelf of shoes there. And we joke that I think it's not shoes they're coming in wearing, they're coming in wearing their work boots and they put those on the shelf before they go into that locker room and come out on the ice. Yeah, and if you want, if you're coaching any young hockey team, the Erie Otters are a great example because you you look at players like Sador and you look at junior hockey and you see guys that aren't getting the offensive results on the stat sheet that they want. It can go one of two ways: you have guys that aren't scoring and they're really not doing much, or you have guys that aren't scoring and they're doing everything else and they're helping that team win. And having that right attitude, that right focus, and realizing you don't necessarily have to show up on the score sheet to be valuable to your team. And I think the Erie Otters have bought into that, and that's why they are where they are. I wanted to talk a little bit this week about Shane Wright, and I think that's a name that a lot of junior hockey fans, particularly in Kingston, are interested in, especially when you look at the Frontenac's perspective on this as one of the three teams that has expressed intention to bid for the 2024 Memorial Cup, obviously getting a Shane Wright returned this year, and then the bounty that they could get in return for a trade of Shane Wright would bode pretty well for a year ahead, but... The reason I wanted to talk about him is this is one of the the interesting things about junior hockey, in my opinion. You and I are obviously very passionate about it. We love the game at this level before they go to that next level. I always go back to the conversation around Matt Duchesne when he was playing for the Brampton Battalion, and I'm talking to the team president at the time, and he says, I don't understand why fans in this market, in the GTA, won't come and watch Matt Duchesne for $25 tonight when they're going to spend $250 to go see him next season when he's playing in the NHL and they're going to Scotiabank Arena, Air Canada Centre at the time. But you get that point. And that's one of the things we love about the game at this level. But one of the other things that we always or we often get into is around the holiday time when all of a sudden everybody's paying attention to junior hockey for the World Junior Tournament. And we're like, um, it's been here the whole time. Like you all know this, right? And then for that two-week window, everybody's watching it. Everybody's excited about it. And then they just go back and follow their pro teams and pay very little attention to major junior hockey. It, it's really sad. It's a dynamic I admittedly don't understand. Uh, there's access to these games now. Uh, I, I never quite understood how people come together to care so deeply. Uh, and maybe maybe I shouldn't blame people because the analogy for someone like me might be soccer who doesn't follow soccer all year, but is going to watch Canada in the World Cup and, and know nothing about the players. But you're right. They're right in your communities, they're right in your neighborhood. And if you can drop $20 and watch, you know, Shane Wright or, or whomever you want tomorrow, when you're going to be paying 200 or, or more for much worse seats the next season to follow in the NHL, it doesn't make any sense to me. It's people got to get out there. Yeah. And there are so many players to watch in the league this year. You'll hear about a couple when we get to our prospect of the week. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. It's always, I think, great entertainment value for your entertainment dollar. So the reason I want to talk about Shane, and I'm not picking on Freege and Merrick in any way, shape, or form, 
love the guys, but I was listening to the 32 Thoughts podcast this past week, and it just goes to show the different lenses that American Frege see the game through. Obviously, they're covering the National Hockey League and looking at it through that lens and the lens that we would see the game through. So it was the conversation around Shane Wright, how little he's being used in Seattle. Why wouldn't they send him back to junior? And the first thing that jumped out at me, and again, just look at this from the NHL perspective, Elliot Friedman was talking about, well, really, he should be able to go to the American Hockey League. We understand under the the rules between the CHL and the National Hockey League that you have to be obviously 19 and signed to go into the AHL. So Shane Wright's only got one option here. He can't go to the American Hockey League, which we understand and would appreciate from this end of things, Dan, because you don't want the talent to be sucked from this league too soon. No, and this is, this is those that know me know this is a hill I'll die on. I, I just, I cringe whenever I hear someone say a player is too good for junior. I do not see much of a window where a player can be too good for junior yet not quite good enough for the NHL. I can count on one hand the number of 18-year-old hockey players that I would say were too good for junior at that age. And we all know who they are. You can all probably name them. Everyone else had something still to gain and still to learn here. And you send these players. I've seen a number of players over the years sent to the AHL at, at that age, 19, even 20 sometimes. And they don't get the reps. They don't get the opportunity. They don't get the touches. Suddenly, it's almost a lost year of development. Whereas in junior hockey, Sure, you're surrounded by some younger players and less physically developed players, but you're getting tons of touches and tons of opportunities in various situations. And I fail to see how that's bad for players' development, regardless of how good or bad his team is. And one of the myths in there that's always baked in is say, oh, you know, he's play, he's beating up on 16, 17-year-olds. Well, no, the Shane Wrights are not beating up on 16, 17-year-olds. They're getting matched against the Owen Becks and the top players in the league. Um, a case in point with uh, Philip Massar last I've heard a lot of people say he's too good for the o- too, too good for the OHL. Well, I think we've seen he's a very skilled player, plenty still to gain from being here. Uh, he went head to head against Pavel Minchikov last week, 10th overall pick. Is that guy too good for the OHL? Seems to have no issue playing here and gaining valuable experience. So again, that's, that's a hill I'll die on. They, I would put the player in junior for all the touches he gets a hundred times out of a hundred over sending him as a teenager to the HL to wither. Yeah. And the other opportunity that comes, I'm going to say when Shane Wright comes back to the Ontario hockey league this year is being put in a situation where he will get a chance to make a championship run because you know, that's what's going to happen. Right. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, Imagine the options opening up to Kingston when that happens. Um, sure to be some significant bidding wars around the league on, on his services. And Kingston obviously has the op- option of keeping him and, and seeing what he can do there and what crowds they can attract. So, uh, And I think we can all agree, based on what we've seen from Shane Wright in the league this year, he certainly has, I'm sure he's looking for a big boom year in the OHL, which he hasn't hasn't done yet. So lots to be gained for everyone to see that happen, which it likely will. So you said something that's pretty interesting here because after uh, American Frege kind of got over the idea that you can't send him to the AHL, so it's either junior or National Hockey League, one of the arguments or one of the discussions, points of discussion was around just sending, like, why would you just send Shane Wright back to Kingston so the France can sell tickets? And I thought to myself, well, I mean, you know I love the city. I, I have nothing against the franchise. But it frustrates the ever-loving heck out of me that you've, you've seen good teams very recently. I would say 
last year, the France had a pretty good team with Chromiak and Wisdom and Wright and others. And still, nobody goes to the game. We've seen good teams in the past in Kingston and this fan support's not there. So to argue that, and, and you mentioned it as well, but I don't know how many tickets you're selling in Kingston, even if Shane Wright comes back to your club. If you didn't watch him the last two years, why are you going to watch him this year? Yeah. And, and to me, that would be a, a side function of this whole discussion. Like, yes, it'd be great if they could sell tickets and helps the marketability of the league, but that's a secondary item. You, the reason you send him back is to get those touches. It's, it's good for his development. It's it, all those other reasons, but you're right. I, I don't have a ton of confidence right now that, that anyone's going to sell a ton of tickets in Kingston until they prove me wrong. And then the other two points that stood out to me from, again, looking at it from the pro lens. So, okay. Shane Wright doesn't stay in Seattle. What happens to him? One of the suggestions made was, well, the Windsor Spitfires are going to need somebody to replace Wyatt Johnston because Johnston's going to stay in the national hockey league. And I thought to myself, I mean, Sure, if you want to just look player for player, but I don't see the Windsor Spitfires being in buying mode, certainly not at the price of Shane Wright's going to come for this year. Yeah, and it's it, it can be a fool's game. You have to really know what you're doing as a GM because you can fall into the trap of thinking you're there early or trying to compete again in a year when you need the rebuild. You need to restock the cupboard a little. And I think the most disciplined GMs understand that. We've seen Dale Hunter do it where, you know, team was on the fringe of competition. He still stuck to the guns, moved a couple of players, built for the next year. And I think that's where Windsor's at. So this is why these guys, are, I guess, are paid the money to be GMs, but you, but you don't want to fall into that trap of thinking, you know what, maybe, maybe we've had a good October. So not saying the Spitfires are pretenders, but that would be a tough sell. It was also argued that maybe the powerhouse Peterborough Peets could use a player like Shane Wright. I, I, look, the Peets are off to a real nice start. I'm not certain I'd describe them as a powerhouse yet. Nonetheless, I, what I'm more certain of is Kingston trading Shane Wright into the West. I have a hard time believing it would be a deal made with another team in the East to then just come in and watch Shane Wright light you up several times through the season. But again, that's just an over, you know, a high level view of this. Yeah, I think I think you're right, uh, and we we see this phenomenon in the NHL every year too, where a player's on the market, and the word around the boards is if he's going to be traded within his division or conference, there's going to be an extra asset or two. So, not necessarily that he can't go to Peterborough, but I think Peterborough's going to have to pony up a little more than the Western Conference teams might have to. So, it makes it more unlikely. Okay, so again, I just thought it was interesting to listen to the conversation, and I love the 32 Thoughts podcast. I hope you're listening to that one as well, but listen to it through the pro lens and then consider it through the lens that we see the game, which is, you know, looking at the 20 teams in the Ontario Hockey League and, and how this might shake out there. So just to take it one step further and look at it through our lens, potential destinations for Shane Wright. I mean, I, I got to think, Kitchener's at least kicking tires. Uh, is is Flint interested, knowing that their window is closing? And again, I'm looking at Western Conference teams based on what we just said about not trading within the East. But those two jump out at me. Maybe even maybe even Guelph that seems to be underachieving. I think that would be a wild card. But to me, Kitchener, Flint really leap out at me on the Western Conference side. For sure. And probably for different reasons. I think Kitchener for maybe a little bit of uh, not, not panic, but a little bit of concern where the roster, I think on paper, they felt was going to be a little stronger than it has been. They're starting to come around, but clearly missing maybe an ingredient or two and throw a Shane right into the lineup. And suddenly like their window to compete is this year because they're going to lose an awful lot of players next year. Flint, 
this has been a go for a year. They're doing well. They're starting to fire on all cylinders. So it would just be a load up situation for them. So yeah, those, those two teams definitely jump off the map. Uh, right. Certainly lines up somewhat with Guelph's core as well. Um, so you can see the bidders starting to, to line up when you look around the league at, at who might be the suitors for, for right. And of course the wild card, of course, is where are the Seattle Kraken on this? Because, you know, behind the scenes, there are some discussions and Seattle might have some things to say about, you know, if, if, if we return this player, here's a few destinations we'd be okay with. Here's a few we might not be so okay with. So there's a lot of uh, balls in the air with this one, but you can start to see it shaping up. That's a great point because that pro team, even though they're returning the player to junior, and then we want to look at the junior prospects, that pro team definitely still does have strings to pull in all of that. So that's a great point. Okay, before we move on to uh, something a little bit meatier again in the coaching change in Sudbury, let's touch on a little bit further with the Peterborough Peets. They announced their leadership group this week, and it just stood out to me when I saw their post on social media. And I'm going to say it again here. I think I say this multiple times a year. And, and this comes from a guy that grew up in Kitchener, grew up watching the Rangers, broadcasts Kitchener Rangers games now. But the Peterborough Peets, for my money, best unis in the Ontario Hockey League and best worst unis, of course, are the North Bay Battalions. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I, I'm not going to argue with you there, Mike. I think I have a soft spot for the Peterborough Peets going back uh, to my childhood, too. You always used to look forward to certain teams coming through and there were some kind of nondescript teams and the Peterborough Peets were a team you marked on your calendar because they were the Peterborough Peets, the majestic uh maroon purple whatever you want to call them jerseys that just you know they had their identity they were unique they they always had good teams so i'm not going to argue with you there mike i think the the peterborough peets are right at the top of my list too of that mystique i guess if you will it's interesting you talk about kind of marking them on the calendar to go see them growing up it it must show that we're of you know basically the same vintage because that, that was the thing for me going to the odd to watch games just as a kid when peterborough was the team i'm like this I, and I didn't know much about other teams in the league back then. I'm just like, these are the Peterborough Peets. Look at those unis. I want to go see those games. Well, yeah. I'm, I'm, well, first, like you're much, much older, Mike. So I don't know if same vintage. <laughs> <laughs> I tried to drag you into that. No, I'm kidding. Obviously, yeah, same vintage for sure. But yeah, I, I look back to those those days when you're a kid, you know, and you're at the bowels of the Memorial Auditorium waiting for these teams to show up and anticipate the games. And yeah, the, the Peterborough Peets have just been that force in the league for so long and and just looking so sharp in those jerseys so yeah they're uh they feel like a team that's going to endure in this league no matter what changes happen i want to love the battalion jersey because it's so bad like it's so bad it's good <laughs> but i can't i will give the nod though to what they've done to celebrate 25 years of the battalion in the Ontario Hockey League with the Roman numerals XXV and you've got black and, and gold as the, the Roman numeral colors, the XV and black to celebrate or to commemorate the, the 15 years in Brampton and then the other colored X to celebrate the 10 years so far in uh, back in North Bay. I, I think that's a really sharp look and they've done it in a really classy way on those unis. Yeah, a good nod to to them for that. And I, I fully respect and appreciate the motif they're going for honoring the military with the, some of the, the khaki type colors, but, but yeah, I'm not, I'm not a big fan of the logo, nor, nor the, uh, the color, which airs just a little bit too close to vomit for my liking. So, 
<laughs> I can't disagree with that. I cannot disagree. Okay, the Sudbury Wolves, uh, listen, no question, off to a slow start on the season, like a number of other teams that you and I have talked about on this podcast already. I mean, we were just a few weeks ago talking about the Midwest division as the Midwest, where London, Guelph, Kitchener combined had as many wins as the Niagara Ice Dogs. Now, things have started to settle a little bit. Kitchener put together a nice little run, got back to, you know, at least playing at a level that that fans anticipated coming into the season. London seems to be, you know, finding its feet. Guelph, after a decent weekend just passed, they they finished on a pretty rough note with a 9-5 loss to the Flynn Firebirds. But anyway, I'm, I'm going through all of this just to talk about Sudbury also slow starting and you got some pieces there. I mean, you got your captain in Jacob Holmes, who was of course acquired from Sioux last year. You've got your musties, you got your Goyettes, you go out and trade for Joe Ranger or reliable goaltender. And you put up three wins in your first 11, 12 games. And the Wolves say, you know what, Craig Duncanson, I know you're basically the stuff of Sudbury royalty, but we're going to have to part ways. And listen, it comes after a year where they finished 18th out of 20 teams overall in the league. And if you've got those kinds of pieces, obviously the Wolves expected more, so they make the coaching change. It hasn't had an immediate impact yet, but I wonder what this is telling us, Dan. Like, is, does it show that the, the Wolves are the least patient, or does it show that other teams might just do things a little differently in terms of shaking up the roster as opposed to shaking up the coaching staff? Yeah, you know, I think no one likes to see anyone lose their job, obviously. So this isn't a slight against Duncanson, but you you have, to, in my mind, you have to tip your cap a little to the Sudbury Wolves for for making this move because I think it's tough sometimes with junior hockey budgets to think you know you're gonna get rid of a coach who you're gonna owe some money to. You have to bring in another one. These these things aren't things you're anticipating or necessarily accounting for in that budget, but. Uh, you have an accountability to your fans as well and to the players, obviously, and their families. And and when things are not going well, you have to identify what those things are and why. And clearly, Sudbury felt this was not a great culture they have right now. Uh, things were not improving. The adjustments were not being made. And you start hearing noise from agents and players' families. And all these things start to happen. You hear lots of noise from the fan base who are buying the tickets to watch this product. So, so to my mind, it's a, it's a necessary move. You have enough talent on and expectations on paper there that you want to write this ship before it's too late. So, so I think uh, I wouldn't call them impatient. I would call them active and, and that's a good thing for their fan base. I will echo your comment. And I think it's a great one. I, I absolutely hate it, frankly, when people lose their jobs in this game. And I know coaches will always tell you we're hired to be fired. I get it, but it does suck. And it, it brings up the age old question, right? Do you fire the coach because you can't fire all the players? And I used to have this argument all the time on my post game show after Kitchener Rangers games, how much impact does a coach really have on the game? In fact, I think you and I argued about it a little bit over the years. And I've certainly come around. My, my pendulum has swung to the coach having more impact than I probably once gave him credit for. But it's not like they get to go out there and execute the power play. They can only design it and give the players the, the roles they've got and then let the players figure it out. But this goes to show that obviously coaching does matter. And certainly the Wolves think that's the case. Oh yeah. I I've argued for, especially in junior hockey, I think coaching is absolutely massive. And, and the most dynamic coaches are the ones that are not only very strong communicators, great tacticians. They can analyze what is going wrong or right, break down the opponent 
and get buy-in from the team, but also create a structure within the team where everyone's accountable to each other and they all have roles. So if, if one player is not going on a given night, they can work with that player and someone else can pick up the slack too often in junior hockey that can break down where, you know, the vets aren't really pulling their weight, but they still own the room. They own the ice time. Coach isn't really sorting that piece out. Communication's not great. They're not getting contributions throughout the lineup and it breaks down in a hurry. So I think coaching is always the number one factor and, and almost proven out by some of these coaches that just have year over year success in junior hockey, where it's really tough to do. It occurs to me, Dan, that as we have this conversation this week, a week from now, we're going to be roughly at the quarter point of the Ontario hockey league season already, which kind of makes me shake my head a little bit. Like how did we get here so fast? We've been talking so much about it's early, it's early, but you're starting to see things settle out just a little bit in the Ontario hockey league where teams are kind of settling into these positions, but not only now will we be at the quarter point next week, but, or roughly the quarter point, I I think we're going to start seeing now which teams might be looking at their rosters and how active are they going to be to either shake things up or maybe, you know, they're starting to get a sense of where their team will be and, and whether or not they want to add Stan Pat or start making moves. Yeah, and we've seen this just historically. We're coming into this window right now where this is where GMs start to get active. And coming out of training camp, you want to give your team and your players every opportunity to show what they are and give them fair opportunities. And I think every team in the league, you could look at all 20 of them and pick three or four players who were kind of... Uh, on the bubble, so to speak, in terms of where, what the role was going to be this year. And now we're you know, into November. Teams have starting to get a pretty good idea of this player has stepped up. This player hasn't. This player hasn't quite fit the role we, we saw for him or we, we've identified a gap in our, in our lineup here. So um, now that that information has been collected and, and with more certainty, uh, GMs are working the phones and the ones that figure out, hey, we're actually a contender or, you know what, we're not quite as sharp as we thought we'd be, but our core should be a contender. So we need to add a piece or two here. Um, That data has all been gathered and we're going to start seeing some moves here in the next few weeks. Speaking of players who are stepping up, it uh, segues nicely into the players that we identified this past week as excuse me, our, our prospects of the week. So these are the players that are eligible for the 2023 NHL draft next June. Who stood out to you this past week, Dan Maher? Well, I'm going to go a little uh, against the grain here and go with a player that uh, probably would be the first to say he hasn't had the start he wanted, but I think we're starting to see signs. This is a player I like a lot and I can use some positivity up North. So I'm going to the suburb wolves. I'm, you mentioned Quentin musty a little bit earlier, and he's a, he's a guy that a big believer uh, has NHL teams watching him frequently, a big winger that brings a lot to the table, has some jam, has some offense running about a point a game on that somewhat disappointing wolves team right now. Um, so my guy for this week is Quentin Musty. I think you're starting to see a corner turn here where uh, the second half, I expect big things from him. It's interesting that we're both in the East this week because I am also on that side of the league, but I'm looking at a team that is not underperforming. In fact, we already refer to them as not quite a powerhouse, but still a pretty good team. And we gave a nod to their unis as well. But Nick Lardis is the guy that I'm identifying this week. Uh, until the Peets ran into that buzzsaw that is the Ottawa 67s, uh, he had scored in five 
straight game. So Lardis is a guy that you notice first and foremost, his skating, it jumps right off the page to you. He is a phenomenal skater, but with the five goals in five games, uh, a goal per game over five straight. I like that consistency, obviously, and it puts him at eight for the season, which is almost halfway to his rookie season total already. So nice signs for the Peets, nice signs for Lardis, and Nick Lardis gets my nod as the prospect of the week. Yeah, great call, Mike. And I, uh, I share with you that Nick Lardis was definitely on my short list as well when I, I had a few names this week that I was considering and uh, felt like, you know, we got to give a little love to the Peterborough Peets as well. Like you said, they've they've been rolling and they did run into that buzzsaw, but uh, still a lot of good signs in that game. Jumped out to an early lead. They were playing with some pace. So that's a team to look out for. And Lardis is a big part of it. So great call there. I, speaking of kind of other players that were on my radar, and I mentioned this guy as... Uh, you know, kind of an under the radar player way back when we were looking at the previewing the, the season, but Colson Petrie, I, I was in my mind this week too. I think it was, uh, what was it? Five goals in seven games, but something like that. But he, he has been starting to put up numbers as well. And then this is the beauty of just having to pick one prospect every week. So we'll find the one that maybe we like best or the team we want to throw some love to, but Colson Petrie was also a guy I was looking closely at this week. Yeah, I know you're a big fan of him, and for good reason. Uh, saw a lot of good things out of him last year. So that's the great thing about this league, and again, why people need to get out and watch it is the, there's players like this on every team, and uh, I guarantee you, you go watch a game, someone you've never heard of or paid little attention to is going to jump off the page at you. It does every time I watch an OHL game. So get <laughs> out there. <laughs> we we mentioned that buzzsaw that is Ottawa. Just quick as we wrap up, 12-1. and one. I mean, we, we talked about Erie earlier as a Western team that maybe is a year ahead of where we thought it would be. But how do we explain the Ottawa 67s? 9-0 and to start. They lose their first one. Now they've reeled off three in a row again. You know, I'm kicking myself a little because when we did our, our Eastern predictions, I, I had Ottawa kind of middle, fourth, fifth range. And so I recognize there was a fair bit of talent there. But when I go back, yeah, we... Lots of cause to think not 12 and one, they're going to run away with it, obviously, but there's a lot there. And I, and as a Habs fan, you know, I got to give a shout out to Vinny Rohrer for a highlight real goal. He scored this week, just using that speed to cut around the defenseman and then just flicking it into the roof. Like, uh, like it's child's play. And that's a guy that's not even, uh, on top of the list when you think of the Ottawa 67s right now. So there's a lot, a lot of talent there, Mike. And I think maybe people miss on miss, uh, under, under, underestimated the 67s this year, we'll say. I will absolutely put myself in that category, but kudos to Dave Cameron and company for doing what they're doing there in the Eastern Conference. Okay, this is the time for the shameless plug for what's coming up guest-wise on Friday, also in the Eastern Conference. And Dan, I know you're a big fan of the Quinty region, and our guest on the OHL podcast on Friday is going to be the first ever selection for the expansion Belleville Bulls. Oh. Yeah, the yeah, most of my family, as you know, Mike, from the Quinty region. So, uh, big fan of Quinty region, and I know they've got an AHL team for now, but they should be in the OHL. I'll just, uh, I'll just leave it at that. They should, and in fact, our guest on Friday will get into that and so much more because what a career he had, not just as a junior, but then into the National Hockey League where he played with some guy named Mario Lemieux. 
and a whole bunch of others even made it to a Stanley Cup final. So that's our guest in the OHL podcast on Friday. He is Dan Mahar. Find him on Twitter at Tim Wallach, just like the former Montreal Expo. I'm Mike Farwell on Twitter at Farwell underscore OHL. Email us anytime, ohlpodcast at rogers.com. And thanks again for being one of our 10,000 downloads to date. Your next episode of the OHL podcast comes out on Friday. Do, did, will. The Story of People podcast is now available on the Crier Media Network. The first five episodes are here and feature some incredible guests that fit into one or all three of those categories. Ready? Tara Sloan from the San Jose Sharks, Undercurrent Podcast at NBC Sports. Marianne Iveson from Iveson Voice and the Let's Take This Outside podcast to talk about the world of outdoors as well as voiceover land. Ariana Hunsicker, future Canadian Paralympic swimmer, already winning tons of awards for this country. Scott McGregor from the Hot Wallet podcast to dumb down the world of crypto, Bitcoin, and NFTs so you don't have to. And Jackie Holowaty from Climate Pledge Arena in Seattle, Washington, the first net zero carbon certified arena on the planet. Wherever you get your pods, wherever you watch your pods, and on the Cryer Media Network. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.